staring into the eyes of the elongated skulls and evidence of ancient high technology with special guest Brian Forrester. Episode 13 of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. It's not a good day to be a bad guy. Welcome to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Coming to you from the glacial dumping grounds known as the Michigan Basin, I'm Michelle. And I am Wayne. And we are a Michigan-based husband and wife educator and podcasting duo that after having a UFO sighting in March of 2018, have started to examine UFOs and other paranormal topics within Michigan and beyond. Topics include UFOs, the paranormal, conspiracy theories, ghosts, alternative history and archaeology, cryptids, and all things strange and paranormal. So sit back, grab a drink, and come along with us on this journey down the paranormal rabbit hole. Hey everybody, we're back. Hey everyone. Welcome to episode 13 and we got a great interview for you today. Yep, the official number 13. Scary number 13. But oh. this is going to be a great one. <laughs> I was going to say it's not Friday the 13th. Yeah, thank God for that. But today we got Brian Forrester on of Hidden Inca Tours, and that's going to be a great conversation as we dig into more ancient technology found around the world. And this time we're going to talk about Egypt, we're going to talk about Peru, and we're going to talk about Bolivia. So it's going to be great. And the elongated skulls. Absolutely. Those things are creepy. I look at those and uh, they are creepy. <laughs> well, you know, and, and like I told you, the first time that I saw those, it instantly reminds me of like the the binding of um, the feet in China. Yes. So yep. or the the neck rings to push down the clavicle bone. Right. So for the elongated necks. Yeah, you know, it's really weird how these cultures, these ancient cultures, figured out a way to bind feet or put the rings around the neck or their skulls to separate them from the normal people. But then you have to ask yourself, where did they come up with this idea of why elongate your skull? I mean, are they trying to mimic something or somebody that they saw like that that was more than normal human we're kind of going to talk about that in our little interview definitely a very interesting subject to look into oh, it, the, it's some of the pictures are very disturbing of the binding of infant heads yeah. so we'll forewarn everyone who yeah, if listens you, if you start looking, looking into, into it, it right yeah it, it can be some very disturbing images 100 percent. so all right so everybody we just want to say thank you once again for sharing the podcast and spreading the word. Uh, our downloads are increasing all the time. The podcast is growing. The community continues to grow on Facebook. We're very happy to have everybody on board and listening, and we hope you enjoy the content. We are getting ready to go back into school mode. Actually, this Monday, we <sighs> start our teacher in-service. So, we're you know, looking it's... At 
it's one of those things whenever you say school, it's like, I want to be with the kids. I don't want to be with all of the drama and the politics yeah. that are going on right now. Yeah, the, It's uh, just, it's crazy, crazy times. The times that we're living in right now with this, uh, I'm just going to say the coof and <laughs> uh, parents and children and administrators and school boards and all of this stuff. And I'm, I'm really kind of tired of the drama and the the hyperbolic reactions of people um masks no masks this that vax non-vax you know what i just ignore it anymore i know what i want to do for myself i'm trying to take care of myself the best that i can and that's really it i mean oh, nobody okay. is a hundred percent i'm safe. still over here like dying because you called it the coof well you know it's like um, I you think can't you say, might need to see a doctor. If well, you, you have can't the say the real word anymore. I know. Right. I mean, you, you really can't. And it's quite disturbing that these are the times that we're living in now. And I know we uh, get like a, a special little email from anchor. You cannot say the, the C word, <laughs> the C oh, word, the C right. Word. The hard C oh, word. Oh Lord. Okay. I mean, uh, so anyways, yeah, these are bizarre times and, and honestly it's very difficult for me to get excited about stepping back into the classroom with students and but we're gonna give it a shot because that's what we do good old 2021 can 2022 be any better we shall see but besides our stories we want to make sure that if you have a story that you would like to tell we would like to talk to you. Absolutely. You can reach out to us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. Send us a brief summary of your experience and we'll contact you to discuss things further and try to get you or at least your story on the podcast. Yes, absolutely. It's been a quiet couple of weeks and uh, I'm guessing that's probably because we're getting close to the end of the summer and, and people, people are, are out tr- yeah, vacationing. People are trying to get their and- kid, they're trying to get their kids acclimated and ready for school and you know they are they're trying to get those last minute vacations in totally understand yep absolutely and uh one other thing that we wanted to mention was that we do have our merch store that is active so if you want to support the podcast you can wear some pretty cool swag uh, artwork done by my daughter and uh it's very cool i love the shirts um you may want to order your shirts a little bit bigger than what you're normally used to. I got my daughter a large shirt and it's not that large. So you may you may want to order on the on the larger side. It'll fit her. She'll squeeze into she, it. She she will. <laughs> It'll happen. But um yeah, so if you want to uh help support the podcast, you can obviously go on there buy yourself a coffee mug, a t-shirt. There's other different things that you can purchase that all that money goes to supporting the podcast and helping us buy books um for more research and uh getting people on the show. So Yeah, it, we have a lot of continued reading to do especially yeah. after you get to listen to the interview with Brian Forrester. Yes. And, so um, very intriguing. And and he is quite the prolific writer. So there's a, there's a lot of reading that we have to do to get caught up on things. Also, just uh, as a side note, um, with helping to support the podcast, if you are interested, there is a way you can donate money. There's a donation 
on our anchor page that you can just click on that and if you want to donate money a that Patreon goes to us. Pledge. So it's not Patreon, it's through Anchor. But yeah, so you just go on the Anchor site where our episodes are and you can click on make a donation. Um, so all that information will be in the show notes. So I guess we're going to go on to that time of... Oh, it is What's in the News. Yes. What is in the news? Okay, so I don't know how many of you out there turn into the History Channel and watch Skinwalker Ranch. Ooh, I love Skinwalker Ranch. So, but when you stumble upon a news title that says, I bought a paranormal property... And it's about Skinwalker Ranch, even though the article itself is a few months old. Um, it still is definitely a worthy read and look into, you know, to look into it. Absolutely. Uh, I love the idea of Skinwalker Ranch. I know there's been a lot of paranormal stuff that's gone on for some time. And I can tell you I am working on getting some people on the podcast to talk about Skinwalker Ranch. And that's going to be Awesome. I think realistically you're looking into a time that you can travel out to Skinwalker Ranch. Absolutely. Uh Uh-huh. That's what I thought. So the article says, five years ago, I entered a world wherein the concepts of interdimensional doorways, wormholes to distant worlds, and interstellar spaceports were a regular part of the conversation. Even though I was a skeptic, having nearly personally seen a UFO, a ghostly apparition, a luminous orb, or any other paranormal event of these kinds, as a real estate investor, I was naturally intrigued by the opportunity to purchase and to personally explore a piece of what was referred to by some as interdimensional real estate. I suspected the most likely outcome would be that my findings would debunk any paranormal claims. The journey that led to my purchase of a paranormal hotspot, one that has garnered significant attention and been studied by governments and private groups of scientists and researchers alike, began over a decade ago, when I established relationships of trust with scientists involved in the domain of speculative physics. Little did I know at that time that these individuals were science advisors to the elusive aerospace billionaire Robert Bigelow, or that these individuals would subsequently extend an invitation to engage in a discussion regarding the mysterious 512-acre property in northeastern Utah known as Skinwalker Ranch. I remember my nervous curiosity as I flew into Las Vegas to meet personally with Mr. Bigelow to tour his impressive facility and to discuss the acquisition of the infamous property. As I was escorted by security personnel into the large compound, the Bigelow Aerospace Facility conjured to mind a James Bond villain lair, complete with full-scale models of space stations and highly secure laboratories impressive doesn't quite convey what I saw. After visiting with Mr. Bigelow and his team of scientists, I became more intensely curious than ever. I still believe that there was likely to be a perfectly natural, prosaic explanation for what has been claimed for decades, including UFO sightings, daylight cattle mutilations, orbs, and unexplained, sometimes troubling phenomena 
but the prospect that this mysterious ranch could potentially serve as a living laboratory, one in which I might study and personally contribute to the rigorous documentation of such claims, captured my interest on a very profound and personal level. Well, yeah, I mean, I would want to definitely buy that property, too. Absolutely. Boy, is he in for uh, uh, quite the awakening. So Mr. Bigelow had purchased the property years prior in 1996, following news reports alleging that the family who had owned the land had been terrorized and were being menaced by paranormal phenomena on the ranch. There were claims that prized cattle were being uh, dissected with surgical precision and drained of their blood and that the family, like others in the area, were witness to bizarre things on the ground and in the skies above. After flying in to inspect the property and to strike a deal with the family to acquire this apparent epicenter of so many strange events, Bigelow had installed his own team of scientists to study the claims of phenomenology by any and all means at his disposal. By 2008, Skinwalker Ranch had caught the attention of former Senator Harry Reid and officials from the U.S. Defense Department. They visited the ranch and afterwards, Bigelow became part of a classified program to investigate the possibility of such phenomena known as the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Oh, hey, Tip. Yeah, imagine that. My own first visit to the Skinwalker site took place just days before closing on the purchase. I arrived via helicopter to inspect the ground for myself. As we hovered over the property, I was struck by the diversity of the landscape and natural beauty on display. Well, yeah, it's Utah. Utah's gorgeous. Including a brilliant multicolored mesa plateau with caves, abandoned homesteads, meandering water waterways, and what appear to be several guard towers surrounded by high fencing with razor wire. <laughs> Upon touching down in the field outside of the main ranch house, we were greeted by Mr. Bigelow's armed security and soberly escorted on a tour of the entire property. Among the more curious and memorable sights during that first visit were what appeared to be animal remains deliberately hung on the fence parameter bordering with the surrounding Native American land. We then discussed the history of the property, including the claim that a curse of some kind had been pronounced on the land as a result of conflict between Native American tribes. The legend suggests the property is placed squarely in the path of the skinwalker. In Navajo culture, a skinwalker is a shape-shifting demonic witch or other entity. Such were the stories connected to the property of which I would become the principal steward. Yeah, and I just want to add, if you want to learn a lot more about the history of actual skinwalkers and what the conflicts between the Native American tribes that were going on, you need to head on over to the Brothers of the Serpent podcast and check out their episode on Skinwalker Ranch. It is fascinating, and it has a ton of information there to help kind of put into context what was going on between the Native Americans and how skinwalkers were used and how they were created and how they were eventually hunted down by the Native Americans too. There were actually Native American 
witch hunts that took place. So definitely head on over to the Snake Bros and check out that podcast. So he says, the first six months of my ownership of the ranch were relatively uneventful, with exception of my newly installed security personnel capturing photographic and video records of unusual objects that we were unable to identify hovering over the land in broad daylight. I remained skeptical, naturally, as to their nature, but also curious and cautiously open-minded. Even to a pragmatist, it appeared that something quite unusual may indeed be happening on this property. And then one day in the autumn of 2016, my outlook on the ranch and the narratives bound to it completely changed. I observed with my own eyes what I believed to be a flying saucer in broad daylight just above the mesa. As I traveled eastward, returning along the dirt road from the western extreme of the property, with multiple witnesses at my side. From that point forward, installing an appropriately instrumented observational scientific surveillance program became the top priority in my stewardship. Absolutely. Get that on camera. Yeah, you need all kinds of evidence. But just to go back to the episode with the Brothers of the Serpent, uh, Their episode number 205 is on the Legends of the Skinwalker, and that is with Marty Garza. So get over there and check them out. So he goes on to say, people often ask me, are you a believer? My honest answer is no, I am an experiencer. I don't believe per se, but I believe what I saw, and I am convinced that we continue to witness unusual activity that I cannot personally explain. Others are interested, too. Now, this is interesting because, you know, Demi Lovato has been yep. working on her own investigations. So the award-winning rapper, singer, and producer Post Malone visited Skinwalker Ranch in February of 2021 and was given a tour of the property. We have yet to determine the nature, the origin, and agenda, if any, of the phenomenology attached to the so-called paranormal site. And the validity of UFOs and paranormal activity in general remains to be proven real. But my team and I are convinced that we are encountering activity at Skinwalker Ranch that is unusual and not easily explained. My perception of the world and universe has been forever changed by my experiences. Now I believe the adventure of owning this paranormal property is just beginning. Yep, absolutely. And they're in between seasons right now, but... They're on the History Channel, and a little bit of it seems a little bit dramatized, but... Again, it's it's fascinating. Oh, it's on TV. I mean, even the History Channel. So yeah, there is going to be some dramatized. But there, I remember the earlier episodes about the the cattle and the mutilations and the blood being drained. And it is it, and just the different stories of previous owners and uh, one of the sheriffs of the area at the time um, coming there to visit a cattle mutilation that had happened. It it's just a an amazing place. And for years it has been reported that this is like a hotbed of ancient uh, curses. And well, and it's not like it's just one or two people who have witnessed it. There are many. And, you know, when previous owners are ready to get out of Dodge because their family has been terrorized and they feel that they've been terrorized, you know, most people would not want to give up that kind of property. No, it, it's gorgeous out there. Um, but 
again, I, I don't want to talk too much about it because if somebody wants to go and watch those episodes, uh, yeah, we don't want to give anything we, away. We don't want to do a, a spoiler alert. So just go and check that out. I am working on getting some, somebody or some people on the podcast to talk about Skinwalker Ranch. So hopefully that'll happen, uh, in the near future. We're going to jump over into some shout outs. So first I would like to give a huge shout out to Hidden Inca Tours hosted by our special guest today, Brian Forrester. Hidden Inca Tours works with leading experts, geologists, engineers, and the holders of oral traditions to investigate megalithic sites without bias. Participation in one of their tours feels like joining an informal research expedition with knowledgeable friends. If you are interested in seeing the current tour schedule and maybe joining the tour yourself, get the backpack ready and simply go to www.hiddenincatours.com and click on the tour tab for more information. And then we have Cosmographia. It is their mission to investigate and document the catastrophic history of the world and the evidence for advanced knowledge in earlier cultures. You will also learn of the profound effect it has on human civilization, both past and future, its relevance to Earth herself, and how to successfully cope with the inevitable changes that are sure to visit our dynamic geocosmic system. And once again, we're going to jump across the pond to the UK and give a shout out to Phenomena Magazine, the world's most recognized e-zine of its kind. The magazine investigates the whole realm of the strange, profound, unknown, and unexplained, delving into the paranormal, UFOs, cryptids, parapsychological, and Fortean events. The magazine can be downloaded every month for free in PDF form. Check out the show notes for a link to the magazine. We will also be featured in an upcoming issue of the e-zine, so stay tuned for more info on that. And finally, we have the Lost in the Dark podcast hosted by Burton and Aaron. This is a pretty cool podcast that bills itself as an attempt to capture incredible conversations between best friends as we explore all our passions, but especially music and the world of heavy metal. So if you're into paranormal investigations and loud heavy metal music, give them a listen. Strong language, but it's heavy metal and the paranormal. What else would you expect? All right, Michelle, I think it's time for us to take a little break. What do you think? Yep, just a little bit of a break. Enjoy the tunes, folks. Well, it is that time for us to take a look into a little bit of the background of our special guest tonight, Mr. Brian Forrester. Yes, so Brian Forrester was born in Rochester, Minnesota, but grew up on the west coast of Canada. At the age of 11, he became fascinated with the art of the Haida and other native people and began carving totem poles 
and other related art forms learning from native teachers. After completing an honors bachelor's of science degree, Brian decided to take up carving and sculpture full time at the age of 25. This included the creation of 15 full-size totem poles, dugout canoes, masks, bowls, boxes, and other native-style works. In 1995, he moved to Maui, Hawaii, and was hired as an assistant project manager for the building of the 62-foot double-hulled sailing canoe ancestor of the modern-day catamaran, Mokahia Opilani. Sacred Lizard That Pierces the Heavens. This project lasted two years. Over the course of the next decade, he explored Polynesia, looking for the source of the Polynesian people. Peru became his next major area of interest. The study of the Inca culture led to his writing of his first book, A Brief History of the Incas, which, by the way, you can download for free on his website. As of August 2021, he has written a total of 37 books, all available in e-format and paperback form from his Hidden Inca Tours website, as well as www.barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com. All of these books are about ancient mysteries. He also writes articles for Graham Hancock and was associated with Lloyd Pi of the Starchild Project, whose geneticist is analyzing the DNA of elongated human skulls of the Peruvian Paracas culture on his behalf. He counts amongst his colleagues Stephen Mailer, author, archaeologist, ancient Egyptian oral tradition specialist, and expert on crystal skulls. Christopher Dunn, engineer and author of the Giza Power Plant. Dr. Robert Schock, geologist and expert of ancient Egypt. Hugh Newman of Megalithomania, who he co-sponsors tours with, L.A. Marzulli, and many other well-known alternative authors and researchers. Brian has also been on nine episodes of Ancient Aliens, numerous radio shows including Red Ice Creations, Coast to Coast AM, Jeff Rents, Project Camelot, and a new U.S. video series called Unsealed, as well as L.A. Marzulli's The Watchers, Episodes 6 and 8. He has become an authority on the megalithic works of South America and the perplexing ancient elongated-headed people of the area, and divides his time between Paracas, Peru, and Cusco. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, let's welcome our special guest, Brian Forrester. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to both of you. Uh, we're very happy to have you on as we continue our trip down the rabbit hole of exploring ancient high technology and um, catastrophic ending to the last ice age, which may have wiped out a very advanced civilization. We're trying to get to the bottom of this, and I'm sure we'll We'll get all the answers taken care of in this interview, so we'll we'll be good to go. <laughs> so one of the uh, first questions I wanted to ask you was, can you tell our audience that might not be uh, familiar with you a little bit about yourself, your background, and what made you decide to get into researching ancient megalithic sites 
And to piggyback on that, what was uh, the first piece of evidence that you saw that made you think that ancients had some type of a higher technology that we give them credit for when it comes to the building of these structures? Well, I guess uh, I was born in the U.S. I grew up in Canada, but I bounced back and forth between both countries because I have citizenship in both, uh, which has been a, a pleasure for me so far. Um, and I guess the, the first megalithic structure I saw was when I was 16. I went to England and I saw Stonehenge. And I, at that time, there was no fence around it. So you could walk up right up to the stones, which was pretty incredible. Of course, now it's heavily enforced. Um, most people have to view from a, a fence that's about a quarter mile from the site, as far as I know. And so mm -hmm. I was just, I was, kind of, I was kind of stupefied by the size of, of that and growing up with National Geographic, looking at photographs of um, ancient sites in Egypt, especially, yes. uh, very much impressed me. So I've had a chance to be to Egypt the last nine years and um you know and of course i live in peru so i'm able to visit um ancient megalithic sites here when more or less whenever i want to so that um you know there's the more that i look at these places the more i see evident obvious evidence that there were very advanced civilizations involved in their original construction which did not involve as we were saying earlier copper chisels or anything like that <laughs> right and so, um, you know, I think there were at least three or four different very advanced civilizations that existed prior to 12,800 years ago that were responsible for all of this work that we look at. And when you went to Stonehenge did, and you saw those blocks, was, was that kind of the, the evidence uh, or while you were there, did you see any evidence of even at that young of an age? Any evidence of high technology drills, core, you know, the drill, the cores, things like that? No, it was mainly just the size of the blocks, the fact that, that the quarry is about uh, 150 miles away for the giant, uh, the giant stone circles. Uh, there's, you know, there's nothing in Canada that um, of an advanced age that looks like that. And there's really nothing in the United States, as far as I can tell, that's you know, as advanced as that that we know of since North America was covered in ice, you know, up right. until the end of, end of the last ice age. So that was that was my first in-person contact with something that defied uh, the common uh, academic explanation of, of how something grand like that was constructed. Right. I asked Ben this question from Uncharted X, and I want to ask you the same question and see what your ideas are but can you define what you mean by ancient technology ancient high technology what is the definition you have when you write your books or you are looking for this evidence well i would basically say um very large-scale constructions where the stones fit together without any kind of mortar in egypt there's a lot of evidence of machining marks that we've seen in many locations like drill holes and saw marks that were not present during the dynastic age uh, because again they had copper and bronze in limited supply and we're looking at um, cutting that would involve 21st century technology at the least if not more advanced and then in Peru of course you have 
the polygonal constructions where the stones fit together. Each one's a different shape and size. Uh, I've been there with a number of, of engineers and also stonemasons, and none of them can explain how a lot of that work could be done today. So that, you know, that it defies all academic um, evidence that we have been presented since childhood. Yeah, those those sites down there with the polygonal rocks, uh, the the boulders that are put together, they look like they were fashioned almost to to lock together that the way that they are, and there's no mortar or nothing in between them that hold them in place. It it's absolutely fascinating, and to find that in um, South America, Peru, Bolivia, it's really quite fascinating. So speaking of that. You recently finished a tour with Ben from Uncharted X and you had Jimmy from Bright Insight. Can you give us a breakdown of the sites you went to and uh, how that how did that all go? Well, it all went very well. I've known Ben for, I think, about eight years. Um, I've been aware of Jimmy for probably three years. So uh, re, uh, re-meeting with, uh, with Ben was great. Meeting Jimmy for the first time was great. We all are on the same page in terms of the obvious evidence that we were looking at. So uh, we started at Ollante Tambo in the Sacred Valley of Peru. Then we went to Machu Picchu and um, then up around Lake Titicaca area around the city of Puno. We came close to the Bolivia border, but Bolivia unfortunately is closed. So Mm -hmm. we weren't, we weren't able to cross over and see Tiwanaku and Puma Punku, but um, we had a great group of people, about 34 guests, all from the U.S. Very nice. Uh, and they all, they were all blown away by, by what they saw. As, uh, as is obvious, if you look at a photograph or somebody's video, it's one thing. But to be on site in person is a completely different experience. Yeah, there's a reason why they call these megalithic sites, because they're, they're absolutely huge. And I... I can't wait to get to some of these places myself because, you know, you you look at a picture and, you know, when I worked with geologists and things like that, when I was in school, you take a picture of something, but you also put like a tool or something in the picture so you can get a scale of the boulder or the rock you're looking at. And you take that photograph and maybe you set a, a hammer uh, uh, some type of a chisel, uh, a little ruler, and then you snap the picture of whatever object you're looking at. In your case, in the videos and the pictures, you're using humans roughly averaging about six feet tall to stand in front of some of these blocks. And they, they look tiny. And this is, these are up in the, what kind of elevation are you dealing with when it comes to like Machu Picchu and those types of sites where these things were built? Well, Machu Picchu is at about 9,000 feet. The city of Cusco is 11,300 feet and Lake Titicaca is 12,500 feet above sea level. And those rocks and boulders that they used, were they quarried or were they transported from one place to another up these elevations? Yeah, it depends on the site. In the case okay. of in the case of Machu Picchu, all the stone is white granite and it's from the mountain itself. Okay. Um, 
with Oyente Tambo, the quarry for the red um, granite is across the valley and on top of a mountain. So that's a, you know, and there's no real trail that goes to the quarry. So that's pretty profound. And in the case of uh, Puma Punku, the red sandstone is from about nine miles away. And the uh, gray andesite is from a quarry 55 miles away on top of a volcano. So not as, you know, not, not as profound as, uh, as in Egypt, but still, you know, that's a, those are pretty big distances and would take incredible coordination in order to be able to pull something like that off. Not, not the result of, of a, you know, a relatively technologically primitive society, you know, coordinating activity to pull something like, like that off. That's insane to think about them moving. Not only are they moving them down a mountain, but then they have to take them up. And I mean, my wife and I go to Lake Tahoe, which has an elevation of, you know, 6,000 feet above sea level on average. And, you know, you're winded the first couple of days you're there just walking, you know, a mile. And these people are, are moving heavy stones and, and blocks of rock up and down mountains. And to me, that's a big piece of evidence that there was something else going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the questions I also wanted to ask you was, do you think you could give us an overview? Well, you kind of did of the megalithic sites, but perhaps a timeline that would help us place in our, our minds um, when these megalithic structures were built and then when the Maya came in or the Inca came in and when these things took place. Well, we know that there was a series of cataclysms during what's called the Younger Dryas uh, period of around 12,800 to 11,700 years ago. And, uh, you know, that transformed the planet very rapidly in very profound ways. Um, and so what we believe is that all of these major megalithic constructions were done prior to that time. We don't know precisely when. The conventional story is that civilization rose about 6,000 years ago, but what I believe is that that was a, a renaissance of society, that um, humanity came back from a very dark time period. Uh, probably the original builders were wiped out and uh, left no evidence of their existence except for the megalithic constructions. But um, yeah, we're talking about approximately twice as old a civilization as we know it, if not older. And how do the Mayans and the Inca then play in to those megalithic structures? Well, what, what I believe is that uh, the Inca capital called Cusco was first founded by the Inca approximately 1000 AD. They moved up from Lake Titicaca because they were forced out by um, some tribal people called the Aymara. And the standard story is that they started to build their city from scratch, but we see a lot of evidence of cataclysmic destruction in the core of Cusco. So I believe that they found an abandoned megalithic city and built their relatively cruder constructions around and on top of the stone structures that they found. Is there any evidence at these sites that might lend a hint as to how these sites were built at all and what their purposes were, like any types of hieroglyphs or 
any kind of stone tablets, anything that might give us any idea of what, what was going on there and how they were made? In Peru and Bolivia, uh, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. You've, you simply have the stone structures themselves. You don't have any hieroglyphs. You don't have any um, art, as, as we would call it, as in depictions of, of humans or animals. Mm-hmm. Of course, of course, in Egypt, you do. You have uh, you know, hieroglyphs all over the place. There is some evidence that hieroglyphs predate the dynastic Egyptians because you have two styles. You have relatively shallow hieroglyphs, which were done during the time of the dynastic people, but then you have much deeper ones that appear to have been done by machines. And this is backed up by the work of uh, engineer Chris Dunn and now other people. Ben, of course, realizes that coming from an engineering background. And uh, Jimmy realizes that too, as does Johanna. So um, that's why I think there were different civilizations in different parts of the world because the building techniques are also different in uh, in egypt you mainly have straight line construction and then in peru you have as we discussed polygonal and even bulging walls um, very different techniques of um, of doing something do you think that the ancient the real ancient egyptians that built the pyramids and if we're not going with the whole dynastic modern day archaeology egyptology timeline do you think those objects in egypt were built around the same time or were in play around the same time as those in peru do you think they were communicating or having any type of uh commerce or trade or any evidence of that going on? Well, I think each, like each is, is at least 13,000 years old. Um, But that's the problem since we have no real organic uh, evidence, you can't really radiocarbon date anything and you can't properly um, tell how old a structure is by any kind of chemical or other scientific analysis. A number of different people believe that uh, these civilizations were contemporary with one another and that they they were in communication. But I don't see any influence in Peru of any any Egyptian work. And I don't see any evidence in Egypt of any Peruvian work either. So that's, um, you know, that's still up in the air. It's possible, but it also wasn't. necessarily the case and i i don't see any construction influence from one to the other or back and then one of the things that i found by looking at your site and started digging into a, a lot of your videos that i have never heard of before was this idea of elongated skulls that were found and my wife's over here nodding her head yeah, a i'm lot nodding my head because i'm looking into looking into some of your work can you give us some idea of what this is about? It, it just, it sounds very fascinating. And I don't know why we don't know about these things um, and what was going on and what, what is their tie to maybe these ancient structures? Well, in terms of timeline, um, the most common examples of cranial deformation or head binding occurred approximately 2,000 years ago. And this was in different parts of the world, in Melanesia, in Peru, 
Bolivia, among uh, people such as the Maya in Central America and Mexico, also in Western Africa. But almost all of them are examples of where a baby is born um, of a no- noble class of, or a ruling class, and their heads are bound so that they look different from the common people. So that, you know, it's, that seems to be the main commonality around the world, also in Germany and around the Black Sea, etc. But in the case of the coast of Peru, which is where I live, um, the, that's where the largest elongated skulls in the world have been found. In some cases, 30% larger cranial volume than a, a normal human being. So you're talking a genetic difference. They're also missing what's called the sagittal suture, which is one of the major sutures on, on the skull. The eye sockets are larger. The, um, where the spinal cord enters the bottom of the skull is placed back by about an inch. So we're mm-hmm. looking at, at beings that were not homo sapiens sapiens, but at the minimum of subspecies of homo sapiens. And we've done extensive genetic testing to prove that this is the case, it also shows uh, that these people called the Paracas um, were not native, not originally Native American. They're genetically related to people who look very similar and lived around the Black Sea and Caspian Sea area of Eurasia. So that um, you know, that's something that I've made a lot of videos about. I've written a, a book about that, um, and academics simply ignore the you know ignore the, the scientific evidence because I do come from a scientific background. Mm-hmm. So, so it's kind of, you know, in some ways it's depressing that academia um, won't even look at this phenomenon, but we have some pretty hard evidence that this is indeed the case. We're looking at, at, a, at, le- at the minimum, a subspecies of, uh, of humanity that were wiped out around the time of Christ, around 100, well, around 0 AD. Okay. That's amazing. And, and then you got to ask yourself, well, how did they get to the coast of Peru? Well, that's a good point. I have, uh, I, I have worked out a, a migration route that, that is plausible, that they could have made it by some kind of sailing vessel from Eurasia down into the Mediterranean and then into the Indian Ocean and then across to the, the west coast of the Americas and then sailed down to Peru. But, you know, that's, that would be a very long discussion, but that is, um, that is in um, one of my latest books about the Paracas people called Beyond the Black Sea. Okay. And how many, speaking of books, how many books have you uh, written now? Uh, 37. Holy smokes. That's a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> I got a lot of reading to do. <laughs> I got way too much to catch up on. So genetically, they are a, a subspecies of human, and, and they're just being ignored. That, I'm going to bring that up a little bit later, because I, I broached Ben with a question about the whole institutions that are out there. And I, I want to kind of ask you about the, the same thing that maybe what kind of feedback or what you've noticed with institutions and Egyptology and, and what maybe is different or the same down in South America. But since Mm -hmm. you brought up Egypt, we've talked about pyramids on this show and I am fascinated with the Sphinx. And I noticed in one of your presentations, you were taking 
a video and a group through and you were showing them where they're and, and I've heard the rumor of a chamber underneath the Sphinx and you were showing people where there was a ladder off to the side of the Sphinx, I believe it was, and it was kind of covered and hidden. And you said that that led down to some type of a chamber. Can you elaborate on what you think uh, is, is underneath the Sphinx or what you think was going on during that time? Sure. There are at least three openings to the Sphinx. Um, the one that you're referring to is near the back end of the, like, Okay. At the, the rump of the Sphinx, there's a, a, a grate that's about one foot by two feet that has been put in place there due to recent repair work. And if that, uh, if that grate accidentally falls on the ground, then you can look inside and you see a metal ladder that goes down. Uh, <clears throat> what distance, I'm not quite sure, but you know, to have a metal ladder inside what is obviously a hollow structure means that it has to be relatively uh, extensive. And two of the major Egyptologists, whose, whose names I won't bother to mention anymore because, <laughs> you know, it's kind of taboo, but, you know, they're the, the two most, most obvious ones. Supposedly, one, when this repair work was being done and they, they took a block out and they saw that the interior was hollow, they draped a tent around that area and went inside for supposedly three weeks exploring um, you know, maybe eight hours a day. And then when they came back out after three weeks, they held a press conference and said they hadn't found anything, you know, which is clearly stupid. But then also in between the front paws of the Sphinx, there are some wooden planks. And um, I used to do construction. So I, I, I noticed that there was a, a large section that could be taken out. And uh, I was told by our guide at that time, that that is the access point to the underground system under the Sphinx. And uh, because, you know, you can take this, what basically would be a trap door and, and open it and then go enter it. And so that supposedly is where the so-called hall of records would be located. There's also some evidence that uh, there's a, um, a physical connection between the underground area of the Sphinx and also what's called the Osiris shaft, which I've been down um, on the Giza plateau and other stories that say that there's an extensive tunnel system going north, south, east and west under the whole Giza complex. Yeah. I was just going to ask you about the Osiris shaft. What was your experience there? And can you give us any kind of idea what you think the function of the Osiris shaft was? I've been told that they had found down at the bottom four obelisks and in between those obelisks was one of those um, giant black boxes and they removed it. And then it's all flooded down at the bottom and they removed the obelisk as well. Or, or maybe they left the, the box and took the obelisk or one or the other, but, uh, what was your experience and what do you think the Osiris shaft is? Well, the Osiris shaft is very curious. It's only been open to the public for about three years. You have to pay $2,500 to rent it for two hours. So we, uh, we do that with a group of people. Um, it's three levels. You go in sideways underneath um, the causeway to, I think, the second pyramid. And uh, then you go down a, a ladder into a chamber 
and that that descent is about 30 feet. And so you're then you're in a room that's about 30 feet by 50 feet, as far as I recall. Then you go down another ladder, a hundred almost a hundred feet to the second level. Inside there, there are uh, six niches and what's left of two boxes that l- honestly look like they exploded from the inside uh, because it doesn't look like somebody took a hammer to them to chip away at them. They're, you know, they're in three or four pieces. And then the third level goes down another 50 to 60 feet into a relatively small area. But as you said, it's flooded with water. And uh, if the obelisks were truly there, they were removed by the Egyptologists, but there still is a box that weighs in the region of 50 to 60 tons made of of granite, most probably, or maybe even dacite, which is more or less in the center. And I know that because a good friend of mine who was um, on a trip with us the first time we entered the Osiris shaft, he was walking around on top of it. So the lid is still on top of this big box. Um, I may be going in October with, with Jimmy. And so if we get a chance to go down into the Osiris shaft again, I want to, you know, I'll take my, my shoes off and roll up my pants and see if I can walk <laughs> around in the water a little bit and climb on top of that box. But um, what its original function was, I honestly have no idea. Um, but the whole thing is carved into the bedrock. So it was obviously done on purpose. It must have taken an incredible amount of effort. And um, again, it's only accessible if you pay quite a significant fee. Uh, but I do believe that there are side tunnels that connect up with other tunnels underneath the Giza area. So I've been doing a little bit of digging into Christopher Dunn and the mm-hmm. pyramids were a type of a power plant. Something was going on there and he has some different ideas. Where do you fall in? Do you think that these structures in Egypt were part of a large power conduit system and uh, what evidence makes you think this, or if you don't think this, why not? Yeah, I'm, I was uh, very um, honored to travel with uh, Chris Dunn on my first tour of Egypt. He was the, you know, the leading character. Uh, I was brought in because of my work in Peru. So um, I very much respect Chris's work. I believe that the original pyramids were not necessarily power plants, but they were energetic structures utilizing the energy of the earth itself to concentrate energy. And that then this energy was transmitted to the obelisks, which of course are giant one block um, or one piece um, granite constructions. And that it acted like an ancient, almost like an ancient Wi-Fi system, you know, natural energy coming from the earth and then being transmitted to very specific locations uh, to the to the ancient megalithic places that we recognize, such as uh, Karnak and also Luxor, and probably even to the north at a location called Tanis. So, yeah, I'm very much a, a fan of Chris's work, very much respect him. Um, it, it appears that these giant um, energy systems had no moving parts whatsoever. They simply you know, utilize the structures themselves and the, and the natural energy of our planet to be able to focus energy to specific locations. Now, 
I know Chris had put together a presentation and I was watching a little bit of it where he talks about using the queen's chamber as this sort of a, a, a mixing place of, um, I want to say like hydrochloric acid and, and some that were poured down the, the, into the chamber from up on the sides of the, the pyramid. Do you know anything about, uh, how that would work? Yeah, well, actually, it's easy for people to look up uh, Christopher Dunn's work on YouTube where he explains his theory about that. I, mm-hmm. I honestly think it was a much simpler process. I don't think liquids were involved. I think, okay. it's, I think it was simply collecting and concentrating the energy of the planet without any kind of chemical um, reactions going in place. You do see salt deposits inside the Great Pyramid, but that could have been the result of the fact that you have very, <clears throat> rather very complex limestone being involved that has natural salts inside, and then the dampness over the course of thousands of years would cause a, a buildup of, of uh, you know, like some um, salt deposits on the walls and ceiling. And of course, they do actually clean the inside of the, of the pyramid once in a while, so uh, the inside is not the way that it looks um, as it would have looked originally because of that. Um, so yeah, that um, I I don't think chemicals were involved okay. myself. In one of your presentations as well, one of your videos I was watching, you went to a place called Abu Rawash, and you had made the the comment that you think that this pyramid was destroyed and it it exploded. Uh, Can you give us some details on what you think happened and a little bit about that structure? Well, the two theories are that uh, the big Abu Rawash pyramid, um, which again takes special permission to view, and you can see the the Giza plateau from there. Um, Either it was never finished or there was some kind of catastrophic um, explosion that happened that li- literally blew the top of the pyramid off, exposing the core. So I, I still believe that there, there was some kind of cataclysm that damaged it. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of unique. The interior of the Great Pyramid, it, it appears that uh, there was an explosion in, inside the um, the king's chamber as well that moved some of the big granite blocks, something like half an inch or an inch. So I, I think there could have been a series of cataclysmic events that happened in the Giza plateau that happened in pre-dynastic times that caused the big energy grid system uh, to, to become overloaded with energy. And then uh, it exploded and then everything went offline. And that's why when the dynastic people found them, they decided to use them as tombs because, you know, you, any culture that moves in to, to find, you know, any major kind of um, stonework would say, okay, well, we don't know what these were, but let's make use of them and do something else with them. In the case of the Egyptians, you know, kind of made sense, at least with some of these structures, to use them as, as tombs for high nobility, even though, of course, they've never found any human remains in the major uh, right. pyramids, but of course, all around the major pyramids, you have thousands of, of, of dynastic tombs. 
that seems to make sense if the pyramids were somehow generating energy from the planet and then around 12,500 years ago or so during the, the younger Dryas, we had an impact that put a lot of energy into the system of the earth. It just makes sense to me that if you have a huge impact with a lot of energy and you're generating energy from the earth, that these systems would get overloaded by this huge uh, impact. So that kind of ties all of that into where I wanted to go with, where are you at with the Younger Dryas impact theory? And what's your whole thought on the ending of the last ice age? Well, of course, I've studied a lot of, of the works of, of Robert Schock and Graham Hancock and um, physicist Paul Laviolette, um, etc. Even Barbara Hanclau, who, you know, they've all written major books about this kind of thing. Um, I think it was a whole series of different events that happened over the course of a thousand years. Some people speculate it was a, a comet that broke up. Um, Others speculate that it was energy emitted from our galactic center, that, um, you know, our galactic center is a black hole and occasionally it'll fill up with energy and then it emits energy back out onto the galactic plane. Um, Also, very recently, they found in Greenland that an asteroid, you know, that was like a year and a half ago, I think, or two years ago, they found that there is an asteroid that is uh, under the ice in Greenland that impacted possibly 12,000 plus years ago. It's a mile long and had the impact of 54 million Hiroshima bombs. So I think that could... Is that the uh, crater that's like 30, 30 kilometers across under the ice? Yeah, it's called the Hiawatha Crater. Yes. Yeah. Anyone, anyone can look that up. So I think that that size of an impact um, could have resulted in the very rapid melting of the ice sheets, especially in North America, causing sea level rise of 400 feet in a very in two very short pulses of of time. And um, you know, rising sea level like that would have put a lot of pressure on the crust of the Earth. Uh, that would have it triggered volcanoes. It would have created um, massive earthquakes and all sorts of events. It would have buried advanced civilizations that lived anywhere near the coast, you know, that would bring up the possible Atlantis concept, etc. So it, it could have even destabilized the axis of the earth. Um, so I think that's a possibility that would have been uh, globally devastating, It would have wiped out the majority of, of anyone who was alive. And we have more and more evidence that that did happen. Yeah, it's uh, quite amazing. Um, the evidence that's coming forth now with the the nano diamonds and the black matte layer that they're finding that shows that there were these impacts and huge fires, you know, ravaging oh, yeah. the planet. Yeah, it's it's uh, quite a different story than you know what I was taught with uh, you know the ancient megafauna was you know chill, kill, or ill. So they either froze to death or they were hunted by humans, you know, all 180 different megafauna species, or they all got sick and died. 
you know, so, you know, little bands of humans were wiping out mastodons and the short faced bear and, you know, saber toothed tigers. Cause well, that's what they did. And I just, I couldn't buy into that. Yeah. Well, especially in the course of a, in, in a thousand years, you have all the megafauna wiped out. Yeah. That, that couldn't have been done by little, you know, hunter gatherers, because w- when you look at the photographs of a human being compared to some of these animals, yeah. how many spears would it take to take one down, let alone millions of them? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I, I would think that humans were probably more of a, a prey animal back in that time than they were uh, the, the top of the food chain, mm-hmm. um, you know, with their little addle addles, you know, trying to, well, I guess one of the theories was that they would stampede the, the mastodons and, and mammoths off of cliffs or something along those lines. It, it just, it never made sense to me. And it was kind of one of those, you know, well, shrug your shoulders. That's what we got. And that's what we're going with. And I don't have any other ideas and I really don't want to partake in any more ideas. So, you know, have a nice day, go to your next class kind of a thing. And Mm -hmm. just, you know, which kind of brings me to um, my next little series of questions I wanted to ask you. And it's about this pushback, whether it's politically or from these institutions and people, you know, trying to protect what what they believe to be true or what they've been taught. And they're kind of like these gatekeepers. So I had heard, um, and I think it was Russell Brand had said this and it kind of stuck with me. And I said, you know, this would be something provocative to say to, to get some kind of conversation going about what we see with things. And his observations was that institutions have at their prime function, self-preservation, self-preservation, be it economic, financial, corporate, scientific, political, or anything else. So with that being said, with where you go and what the work that you do and things like that, have you had any pushback or dealings with these gatekeepers of knowledge or, or people pushing back on you for, for your research at all? I would say more than anything, my work has been ignored, as has Graham. I mean, Graham Hancock has had to put up with decades of abuse from academics, you know, attacking him yeah. in the press, etc. Um, he's the one who's taken the, the brunt of all of that. Fortunately, I, I, I haven't. I've simply been ignored. But uh, the last time I was in Egypt, which was March of, of 2020, I was told by our head guide, who was Egyptian, that the the Egyptian government know who I am. They know what I do. They're friends of mine on Facebook. They watch my <laughs> YouTube videos, and, and it's like, okay, um, you know, well, maybe they they see the the tours and and this interest that people have in their country and their you know structures as you know a money making opportunity. Well, it also, my, my first book called um, Lost Ancient Technology of Egypt was banned in Egypt for a while, but I'm, I'm lucky or I'm, I'm happy to say that it's available in stores in the Luxor area of Egypt now because I've seen physical, physical uh, copies of it. But I also believe that the younger ar- archaeologists and Egyptologists are far more open-minded. So as the old school retire... 
Yeah. Um, the younger ones coming up are, are watching the evidence on YouTube for me and, and Ben and Jimmy and Graham Hancock and, and Randall Carlson, et cetera. And I think they're starting to embrace this stuff. And they're seeing that the history of their country is far more complicated, you know, than dynasty one in 20, you know, 3000 BC kind of thing. Um, so I'm very hopeful of that. And also when I visit sites in Peru, such as Machu Picchu, the younger guides come up to me and say that they've been watching my videos and are surprised by the fact that there is obvious evidence that the Inca found these abandoned cities and simply expanded them. They didn't build them from nothing. There's no such thing as imperial Inca architecture, you know, which was supposed to be very refined because again, we're back to the copper chisel dilemma that, you know, this work could not have been done with copper chisels. That's and right. so somebody else had to have been there to make the original constructions and leave them behind for others to find. So do you find that maybe in South America with the, the younger um, archaeologists coming on board, it, do, are they more open-minded you think than in Egypt or do you find it to be about the same? Um, there's actually, there's not that much archaeology that goes on in, in Peru compared to Egypt. I mean, in Egypt, they're finding new things every week, practically. You're right. But, uh, but yeah, the focus of my work in Peru is to educate the population of the country because this is their heritage. And as I said, there are guide, guides in different locations, Machu Picchu, Oriente, Tambo, etc., who, when I show up, they do rec- uh, recognize who I am. Uh, they're very happy to meet me. They're very excited by, you know, by what I have to present to them. They're starting to embrace the concept that maybe they have 13,000 years of history rather than 1,000. And right. so that's, I feel very, uh, very happy about that. And of course, with the tours, it's the same thing. You bring people, you show them the obvious evidence of megalithic tight fitting work as compared to, um, you know, rough stone with, you um, with clay mortar material work side by side. And everybody who's looked at it, especially from our recent tour said, I clearly see, see two styles of construction. I see very good and I see not so good. So I want to switch gears here for a little bit. And if this would not be a UFO sightings podcast. And if I didn't bring up the idea of UFOs and aliens, and I'm going to say I'm not a huge fan of the whole ancient alien hypothesis, but I'm not 100% ruling that out. But I was wondering what your thoughts on that subject is. And the one presentation I did see with you the other day, you were showing the, the three cartouches that researchers always like to point to and say, that's an airplane, that's a flying saucer, that's a spaceship, that's a submarine you know, you were talking about that. Um, what's your ideas behind these concepts of ancient aliens built these structures? Well, I'm open to the idea because either it was an advanced human civilization or it had to have been an alien civilization or extraterrestrial civilization. Those are the only options. You know, we, we've ruled out who couldn't do the work. So who, who possibly could have? Um, the environment around Egypt, to me, it feels very sterile and mechanical and logical, you know, which I would 
prescribe to a possible um, extraterrestrial encounter. The, um, the technology involved in a lot of cases is, is beyond what we can achieve today. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm open to the idea. I've also had, um, but, you know, I'm not saying it was aliens, but I'm saying it could have been, because if you rule out Atlantis, then what other advanced civilization do we have to, you know, to go to? Um, I've had several uh, UFO encounters uh, myself that I, I can't explain as being terrestrial craft, even advanced U.S. military stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm open to the idea that we have had visitation. We have had those that came, built these things for their own purposes, and then left um, and took their tools with them. And then, you know, they were discovered by uh, civilizations that we understand um, and were used for uh, completely different purposes. You know, in general, uh, these ancient structures were used for so-called spiritual or religious purposes, but that might have nothing to do with the original functions themselves. The original function was probably beyond our capability at this point. We can speculate, we can theorize, uh, but we simply don't know. So Brian, question for you. You said that you yourself have experienced, um, you know, sightings. Um, Was Mm -hmm. that in the the u.s was it canada or peru or other uh the first one was on maui in the in uh, on the side of uh, haleakala mountain okay and that was a metallic that was a metallic craft that was about 200 feet long that that wasn't moving fast enough to be an airplane it wasn't in in the proper airspace uh, I saw it for about 10 minutes. It didn't have any windows. It didn't have wings. It didn't have a tail. You know, these are the things you think about. You don't think about what is it. You think about what isn't it. You know, it's right. not a plane. It's not a helicopter. You, I also got this feeling in my solar plexus that was, you know, kind of disturbing because I was looking at something that I couldn't put in any kind of box. I couldn't say it's a plane or it's a this or it's a that. It's a, I don't know what it is. And then uh, all, the, all of the other sightings I've had have been in Peru, here on the coast, and then up around Lake Titicaca and in the city of Cusco. Main, those mainly were what one would call orbs, like light objects that were circular, that moved under, you know, under the power of some kind of in, intelligence. Um, and that there was a very concentrated period of about three years where I had I think about eight sightings of, of these orbs, sometimes one, sometimes 12, that again, I got this, this feeling in my solar plexus that this is something that I can't explain. Fortunately, my wife was able to observe a number of them uh, with me. So it's not like some cuckoo guy sees something and, <laughs> and, and nobody else does. And you never get a photograph of it. Um, and of course, people always say that, did you take pictures? And it's like, you don't think about taking a picture. You you look at what exactly. you're looking at, and you and you you know you just want the, the event to keep happening. Um, on average, these events have taken about ten minutes. But uh, yeah, I'm you know I'm thoroughly convinced that what I saw was was not from any government you know that we know of. Okay. Yeah, that was uh, it's one of the reasons why my wife and I kind of started this whole podcast was because in 2018 we had a sighting here in michigan 
uh, just uh, north of Detroit. And it was a, I would say anywhere from 200 to 300 foot down each side, a flying triangle. And it was basically moving extremely slow above the ground and you could just barely make it out, but it had the three like glowing lights in each corner and you know, both her and I, and thank God she was there when I was driving. It was very late at night and yeah, it's like she was there with me. So we know what we saw and uh, it it was huge. And it, it just, it turned as we got on the expressway and started heading South, it rotated. And in everything in my scientific mind, in my aviation background mind, in my military mind was like, and I had that feeling in my solar plexus too, was like, okay, fight or flight. I don't know what this is. I've never seen it. I'm stuck on the road. We're just going to keep driving, keep your eyes on it. And it, it was like adrenaline. I had no idea what I was looking at and it. It broke every rule of science that I knew. And then to see this huge object rotate and then go parallel with us along the expressway, we go down into this lower area of the expressway and we come back up and it's just gone. Uh, and yeah. it was insane. And then that kind of led to us starting a Facebook group and people joining it, relating their uh, stories to us. And then, you know, it was just kind of like, Maybe we should start talking to people about this and see. And then next thing we know, there's the the UFO report, which I kind of want to get your your ideas on. What do you uh, what do you make of that report from the U.S. government? I mean, it wasn't much, six or nine pages, but on UFOs and UAPs. Well, again, this is, you know, what they're calling disclosure. And so. It's good. You know, it's good that, you know, fighter pilots are, are seeing this stuff and they're being filmed seeing this stuff. So I think disclosure is very slow, but it, it is happening. Um, the, the concept that um, extraterrestrial ships are going to land on the White House lawn are you know, completely <laughs> asinine or, or right. the idea that, that they've come to talk to the president. It's right. like I think they I think they simply want to be observed by those who are sensitive sensitive enough to observe them and have the, you know, have the guts to be able to, to speak about it, you know, which of course is what you've done and, and what I've done to a limit. You know, I don't want to talk about the stuff too much, but I want, I want to state what it is that I, I saw and I experienced to an intelligent audience, open-minded audience. So I, I believe that, um, you know, finally we are having disclosure happening. It is, it is trickling. Um, and it's good that there are, Co- uh, you know, conferences that go around the, that are around the world. Like a, I go to one um, in California uh, once a year, um, you know, where this is openly spoken about by, you know, you get a grouping of about 5,000 people there who have all had experiences. And um, I think as time goes on with the use of, of cell phones and with the use of, um, you know, high definition cameras and the internet, et cetera, that this, all of this is going to unravel. I don't think there'll be some brilliant, you know, one announcement that'll do anything, but this, this trickling of energy or, you know, of information coming out is a very healthy thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, I mean, we've had 
60, 70 years in this country of, you know, cover-ups and demonizing people and, you know, where the media is, is on board with, you know, covering things up and uh, ridiculing people left and right. Um, but now that they've officially came out and said, we don't know what these are, give us some more money to investigate. But they've been investigating this stuff for a while and they've run a very effective, you know, disinformation campaign, in my opinion, through the media of this country. And it, it's great that people are starting to come forward and talk. I totally agree. But my dad was a former pilot, you know, and they were told never to talk about things like that, or you would lose your job. They would think you're crazy. You're going for a psyche valve. So they, they found ways to keep people quiet. Um, and, and that's really uh, disheartening that they would do such things. And, and, but I am glad to see that there is this change going on some ending questions here and speaking to that of all the places you've been, have you ever gone into a place that had just this, uh, a supernatural or a creepy vibe to it? Something you would, you would, um, maybe, I don't know. I guess, I guess you would, you would feel like I don't want to be in this place. It just giving you a bad feeling. Uh, no, no. I know that, um, I, you know, I, I just spent time with Jimmy of Bright Insight. He went into the Osiris shaft and found it quite spooky. But I, I simply find these places fascinating. So uh, coming from a, a scientific um, scientific method background, you know, I'm just and, you know, having a, a, a big imagination. These places simply fascinate me the more as time goes on. And I'm, I'm most uh, happy to be able to share these places with people either through physical um, interaction with them or through, you know, Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I've never had a, an instance where I felt that any of these places was, was evil or dark or bad, just, okay. um, you know, mysterious. At any of these sites, did you have any kind of a, paranormal supernatural experience did you ever notice like any you know we we always hear about like if you go to the fields of gettysburg at night you know you can sometimes see you know the the ghost of soldiers marching on the fields or things like that have you ever had anything strange like that happen on any of these sites um Nothing really paranormal, I wouldn't say, but um, I always feel energized when I go to them. And then when I leave, I'm energetically drained. Oh. So, so, so mm -hmm. something, something attracts you to it. You're very excited to, to go. You're excited to be there. But by the end of the day, you are completely exhausted. And I don't, yeah. Think, yeah. I don't think the sites themselves are trying to do that to you. It's just these are energetic areas. Um, and so I think it's, it's a natural reaction. You're, you're, um, you know, you're profoundly curious, you're energized and pumped up to be there, but your brain is working at a thousand miles an hour. <laughs> you know, your body is trying to keep up with the sometimes very difficult terrain. So by the end of the experience, um, you know, it's like you're, you are mentally and physically and spiritually tired. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, lastly, do you have any ties to Michigan? No, actually, I was born in Minnesota, which isn't too far away, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
But uh, no, I, I can't honestly say I do have any, any ties with Michigan itself. Uh, one last question. If there's um, somebody who's new to learning about some of your videos and things like that, and they haven't heard anything about ancient technology and an alternative history, the younger Dryas impact theory, those kind of things, and they came to you, where would you tell them to start with your material? Um, well, my YouTube channel has 1,950 videos on it now. Uh, you know, some are 60 seconds long, some are an hour. Yeah. Um, so uh, there is, um, you know, you, you can, with my YouTube channel, you can type in a keyword and see what pops up. Also, my website, which is Hidden Inca Tours, is the same thing. You know, there are books, there are videos, there are photographs, there are are all sorts of different things. You just type a keyword in and the right things will pop up for that. But I would also definitely recommend that people look at, um, you know, some of my associates works as we've been discussing, such as Graham Hancock and Ben of Uncharted X and Jimmy of Bright Insight and, um, and others who are, are, you know, working relatively hard uh, in this field. We're hoping to have, Johanna James with us in Peru next coming August. She's not allowed to leave England at, at the moment, but also the work of, of Randall Carlson is absolutely brilliant. Uh, the mm-hmm. older work by Robert Schock, the older work by Robert Boval, um, etc. I mean, there's the great thing is there's a growing number of people who are looking at this stuff and documenting it and seeing the same, you know, we're all seeing the same thing basically. So uh, we're reinforcing each other's work and that's, you know, that's very hopeful for the future. Well, it seems the evidence is, is really directing you guys and it, it's good to see people following evidence. And uh, it seems like, you know, you, Ben, Jimmy, Randall, you guys are all coming from different angles, but the evidence is leading you guys all to the same place, which is uh, fascinating. And to me, that means that, that there's got to be something to this. So any, any big things coming up in the future that you want to let our audience know about? Sure. I may be going to uh, Egypt in October with Jimmy. Um, then I have a, a big tour of uh, Peru and Bolivia in, in November. And then we may have a tour in Mexico, looking at megalithic stuff in February. Nice. Well, then we definitely have a big tour in um, in Egypt again in March. Uh, hopefully, the Grand Egyptian Museum will be open by then. And uh, June ho- of next year, hopefully, Contact in the Desert will be on not vi- not uh, as a virtual thing, but an in person thing. Because I'm hoping this whole virus thing goes away, yeah. which I think it which which I think it is. Uh, so that's more or less what I have lined up for now. Um, and the next year your website that people can find out more is hidden tours.com that's correct so yeah everybody if you want to find out more information you can check out his youtube channel you which i will link in the show notes along with hidden inca tours and maybe you can sign up and go on some of these and and have a a, a blast it sounds like it would be incredible I hope soon I'll be on these tours as well. I wanted to get out to the channeled scab lands with Randall and 
uh, the snake bros from brothers of the serpent podcast, but it's not happening this year. So Brian, it has been awesome having you as a guest. Thank you very much. I know you're probably still tired from the, the tour you just did. So we just want to say thank you. And it was great having you on. Yeah. We appreciate you coming on the show. Okay. My absolute pleasure. Thanks to you both. All right. Take care. You too. Okay. After that discussion with Brian and looking into the hidden Inca tours, um, how cool it would be to actually go and see, you know, Machu Picchu and the, you know, the, the Incan remains, the elongated um, skulls. Okay. Those images, I'm, I'm telling you, cause I know that most people will go to Google images. If you look. Go ahead and go to Google images yeah, and check it out. Yeah, go ahead and go out. to Google images and look. But if you look at even some of the, the modern photos, as far as what was done in, you know, the, the primitive times with the binding and how evolution you can still see pictures and images today of folks 90s 2000 era with that same elongated skull i think those might be related to the paracas people that brian was talking about that are their heads were genetically that way and which makes them a different species or a subspecies of homo sapien and it's amazing how that is his research is being totally ignored. They genetically tested the material of those people of the Paracas uh, Peru area with the elongated skulls. And my understanding is their heads were not bound. Their heads were naturally that way. So there's a genetic component of the Paracas people. And then there seems to be the people that were binding their skulls and figured out how to do it to maybe make themselves more like the Paracas people. I don't know. The it's whole fascinating. Per- the whole procedure just seems so disturbing. Well, it's, it's very archaic. I mean, it, to bind one's body to get a certain shape is not something we're used to in modern times. It, it can be very disturbing, but they have found a, a fetus inside of a dead female, which had the elongated skull, which means that genetically they are a different human. Now, where did they come from? And that was one of the things that we talked about. He talked about they were from the uh, Black Sea, Euro, Euro Asia area and somehow made it to Peru. And he said that would be a very long conversation to have. Uh, but he did kind of plot out a uh, route that they would have taken to be able to get to the coast of Peru. It's just, it's fascinating. Yeah. And an hour is just not enough time to talk about it. all. Yeah. So one of the things too, that I forgot to bring up with the interview. So I emailed Brian afterwards and I, noticed on one of his videos about the Osiris shaft that they said that they had found that there was some type of a, a black, almost like an organic, like a goo on some of the boxes that were down in the Osiris shaft and they had gotten samples and they had sent it off to go ahead and be tested. 
and I forgot to ask him what were those results of that test. And so I did email him and his response to me was that the black goo appears to be a modern petroleum product used to grease the pumps in modern day excavations. So if they were using mechanical tools to dig the Osiris shaft to open it up to people for exploration, which I'm guessing that's exactly what they did. Then these things leaked in that area. So they kind of contaminated the, the site. So, um, unfortunately it wasn't anything, you know, spectacular, but at least they found out and they could rule out what that might've, you know, been, but man, what a, what an incredible interview as we continue this strange series on the investigations of evidence for high technology in ancient times before what seems to be the great cataclysm that brought the end of the last ice age. Well, and it's who amazing. knows what the next episode is going to bring. It could be again, back to UFO sightings. It could be the, the paranormal. It could I mean, be just about anything. I know, you know, soon it's going to be October. You know. Yeah. Maybe we can get into some ghost yes. stuff. Ghost stories. Well, we got our feelers out there and we're looking for some guests. So and it, don't, it'll be happening. Don't forget, if you have a story, reach out to us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear your stories and talk to you. Absolutely. And if it's something that you want us to put out there on the podcast and you're looking for feedback from people to see if they've had the same kind of experiences, we know that certain people have already connected and talked about some very similar experiences with flying triangles and some people that are having a hard time dealing with some of their experiences that they've had. So please, if sometimes it's a good thing to network. Yes. It's a good thing to network. Just having somebody to talk to, to share your experience with and have us put it out there for you. Um, We'd be more than happy to do that. And if it can help you or help anybody out there, uh, we're more than willing to work with you and get that information out there and your story out there. So with that being said, Michelle, what do you think? You think it's time for us to get out of here? It is time to get out of here and close up for the night. So have a good one, everyone. Yep. Take care. And remember, keep your eyes to the sky. You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters. So until next time.